You're listening to the Theology Mom podcast. And now, here's Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager. Good evening, everyone. Thank you for joining me for tonight's teaching. Happy Tuesday. I hope that you and your family are all staying well. And uh, tonight's topic is going to be looking at the cause of the oppressed. And we're going to be working our way through a number of biblical passages. And in case you haven't noticed, I've been working my way through some of the more common passages that are put forward by social justice oriented Christians. And I do have a few goals in mind as I'm doing this. One of my goals here is to look at passages in detail and to try to see if that is, in fact, what social justice Christians say it's teaching. So we did a long uh, discussion about Zacchaeus recently, and that's a big part of what we were doing. Second, I'm hoping to model for you how to do better Bible interpretation as we go along. And then third, to offer a more biblically faithful vision for justice. So this is not the YouTube channel where we do magic tricks and wizard spells uh, with the scripture in order to make it fit our cultural agenda or what the culture is telling us we have to hear. Rather, this is the channel where we pause and we dive deep into the biblical text and we allow the Bible to shape our thoughts, feelings, and opinions. And so this is usually about an hour long conversation. And I hope that you will join me for this. And our big picture of what we want to do continually on this channel is proclaim the historic Christian faith as it was taught by the ancient church and explore how our current cultural lens and the cultural moment that we're in and, and to see what is happening through the lens of scripture. And if I do my job right, simply by showing you the fuller context of scripture, uh, my hope is that you'll see that the conclusions I come to are fairly obvious. Um, I'm not engaging in any kind of theological sleight of hand here. So that's what we do here at the Theology Mom YouTube channel. Let's get into it here. Social justice Christians will often bring up this observation that there are a number of scripture passages that command God's people to take up the cause of the poor and the oppressed and the fatherless, the widow, the foreigner, and these kind of thing. And there are a number of these scriptures. We're going to look at a few of them. Uh, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 10, it is part of God's character himself that he takes up the cause of the fatherless and the widow. Um, it says in starting in verse 17, for the Lord, your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. He loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. And what we often notice in scripture is that these groups are kind of grouped together. The, the, the fatherless, the widow, the poor, um, uh, the, the foreigner, these groups are often kind of clustered together in scripture on multiple occasions because they all kind of have similar issues. And that is they have certain vulnerabilities. And we're going to be exploring what some of those vulnerabilities are uh, as we unfold the teaching tonight. The prophet Isaiah pleads with God's people to repent of their ways and take up the cause of the poor to be like God himself. It says in Isaiah chapter one, wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead 
the case of the widow. By the time the prophet Jeremiah comes onto the scene a little after Isaiah, God is pronouncing his impending judgment against his people because they continue to not take up the cause of the poor. We see in the book of Jeremiah chapter five, it says this, their evil deeds have no limit. They do not seek justice. They do not promote the case of the fatherless. They do not defend the just cause of the poor. And I could go on and on, but this, this gives you a sampling of these sorts of passages. So what we saw first is that God takes up the cause of the poor, but then he pronounces judgment against his people for not taking up the cause of the poor. So what is going on here? What exactly is this cause that God's people are neglecting in the prophets when it comes to the poor? Now, unfortunately, about 99% of the time, and that percentage could be a little uh, bit of hyperbole, but a lot of the time, when I hear conversations from Christian leaders about justice or social justice on YouTube, they rarely, if ever, take the time to actually define what justice is. They rarely, if ever, offer clarity about their standard for justice. Here is how the discussion about justice usually goes. It's some version of this kind of logic. I'm going to call this social justice logic. Premise one, God is a God who loves justice. Justice is all over the Bible. Premise two, if you read the prophets, they're always condemning Israel because of their lack of justice. They overlooked the poor and the impressed. Premise three, the white evangelical church doesn't care about justice. They don't advocate for the poor and the oppressed. Conclusion, the white evangelical church had better start caring about justice and advocating for the poor. Otherwise, God is going to judge them. The logic that we hear, that I hear time and time again, is something along these lines. Now, they might not spell it out quite that way, premise one, premise two, but that's generally, if you, if you look at the thought flow, it's some version of that. And what happens from there, from the conclusion, is usually a vision for justice is, is put forward that matches the policies of leftist politicians. So in order to be for the poor, you must have things like large-scale government, welfare programs, redistribution of wealth, reparations. And if you aren't for these things, you are often told that you aren't for justice. You aren't for the cause of the poor. In, in my opinion, this is a type of shell game that happens with the words justice and the cause of the poor, because you hear this terminology nearly everywhere right now. And it's a bit frustrating to me at times because it often reflects a lack of clarity. It, there, there isn't time that is taken to carefully and clearly define our terms. And then the conversation about justice can be quite confusing. It can be disempowering and it can even become emotionally manipulative. So what I want to focus on in this teaching is a very specific question. What is this cause that the Bible says we are supposed to fight for on behalf of the poor? What is it exactly that ancient Israel was condemned for when they didn't take up the cause of the poor? And how can Christians properly take up the cause of the poor today? So to answer these questions, we're going to start back with the Mosaic Covenant, because that is the proper place in the Bible where the justice conversation begins. So here's a little pro tip. If you hear a conversation about justice start in the prophets and they, they just keep quoting Isaiah, Jeremiah, Micah 6, 8, but they never get to the law. That's a problem 
because where the justice conversation starts and where justice is defined and explained is in the Mosaic law. So if we start with the prophets, we're only reading about the declarations of the problem. But if we want to find the description and the definition of why it's a problem in the prophets, we have to go to the Mosaic law first. So if you hear your favorite pastor, YouTube preacher, whoever, having a conversation about justice, and all they're doing is quoting declarations about justice from the prophets, but they aren't taking the time to provide actual definitions from Exodus or Leviticus, you should probably think about moving on <laughs> because that, that discussion is probably not going to be very helpful. Another pro tip is that if you're listening to somebody talk about justice and they only read one or two verses and then they, they quickly bridge to political issues in our current reality, this happens all the time. They aren't laying the proper foundation. So make sure that when you're engaged in a discussion about justice, there's proper context. There's adequate foundation before we jump into the cultural application. Okay. So again, that's just a little tip to help you as you are listening to people talk about justice. Now, as I work on constructing an answer to the question about what is the cause of the poor that God wants his people to take up. I'm going to begin the conversation by looking at Exodus 23. And it's probably worth restating again why I'm starting there. I think we can all agree that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His nature doesn't change. The God of the Old Testament is the same God as the God of the New Testament. Second, we need to understand that God's standards of justice don't change. They are the same. Justice is an extension of God's character. So the Mosaic law is a cultural representation of God's standard of holiness for that ancient people. And he wants us as his people today under the new covenant as we represent him on earth, as we exercise dominion over creation to also reflect his standards of justice. So although Christians were not under the treaty of the old covenant, we can look at the Mosaic law as almost like case studies that help paint the picture of what God's standard of justice looks like. And then we translate those those ideas into eternal principles for our own context today. So we are going to assume that behind the laws, the moral laws that we get from the Mosaic covenant, there is an eternal, an eternal transcultural principle that bridges to us and translates to us today. And unless there is something that is specifically changed in the new Testament, so the way the, the Apostle Paul summarizes this issue is like this from the epistle of Romans. He says, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another for whoever loves others has fulfilled the law, the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And whatever other command there may be. In other words, all the other commands, <laughs> they are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So how do we know how to love our neighbor? We look in the law. That's where God explains how he defines love. And I've said it on this channel many, many times. I'm going to say it again. Love is law, not gospel. Okay? The gospel is not love your neighbor and love God. That's not the gospel. That's law. Love is law, not gospel. We are saved by the gospel. The gospel is what God has done on our behalf to save us from our sins. 
The law tells us how to live. The Great Commission says that we are to go into all the earth, preach the gospel, and teach people to obey Jesus's commands. Beneath the New Testament, it was assumed that people knew what the law was, that they had familiarity with the Old Testament. So we shouldn't walk around with only half of our Bible. We don't just walk around with only functioning in 27 books of the Bible in the New Testament. We have a whole Bible. We have 66 books. So we have to figure out how does this all fit together, okay? All right. All of that groundwork in place, we're now going to look at Exodus chapter 23. It's a great passage that I think provides a key insight into what it means to defend the cause of the poor. Let's look at Exodus 23 together. It starts off this way. Do not spread false reports. Do not help a guilty person by being a malicious witness. Do not follow the crowd in doing wrong. When you give testimony in a lawsuit, do not pervert justice by siding with the crowd. Do not show favoritism to a poor person in a lawsuit. If you come across your enemy's ox, your enemy's ox, that's a good word to circle, or donkey wandering off, be sure to return it. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you fallen down under his load, do not leave it there. Be sure to help them with it. Now, I want to draw your attention to a few key features of God's justice standards, and and then we're going to... Go back to Exodus 23. God's standard of justice doesn't allow for lying when giving an account of a wrongdoing. The big picture here in Exodus 23 are how should we conduct ourselves as God's people within the legal system, within law courts. God's people don't lie when they're recounting what happened in a wrongdoing. God's people Don't lie to cover up a crime. God's people are known or they ought to be known as truth tellers. These verses are basically a restatement and expansion of the ninth commandment. Do not bear false witness against your neighbor. Second, we see that God's people must not show favoritism to the poor or the rich, especially in a law court. We don't lie to protect the poor, and we don't, don't lie simply to implicate the rich. Even if the whole world is screaming that someone is guilty, we don't follow the crowd. God's people must live according to God's justice standards and weigh the evidence as dispassionately as possible. Do you remember earlier it said part of God taking up the cause of the poor is that he's, he doesn't show partiality. And he doesn't want his people to show partiality either. Third, we see in these verses that if I see that something is threatening my enemy's livelihood, I think it's implied that I would want to help my friend. But God's justice demands that we even help our enemies. I should act in a way to try to assist him. An ox or a donkey were key tools back then. To be able to earn a living, plow your field, carry your goods, joining in a crowd that is looting a business, someone's livelihood, stealing, breaking that commandment is completely inconsistent with God's standard of justice. We, as God's people, don't treat our enemies that way. We don't allow even oppressors to have their livelihood go up in flames. Rather, we stop and we help them. That is how God's people ought to live a righteous life. Now we get to a critical piece that relates um, to our big question about taking up the cause for the poor. So we're going to pick it up back in Exodus 23 and verse 6. Do not deny justice to your poor people in their lawsuits have nothing to do with a false charge and do not put an innocent or honest person to death. I will not acquit the guilty. Now, 
God specifically delineates that it would be an injustice to the poor to deny them justice by bringing them up on false charges. They are vulnerable to that kind of mistreatment. When people engage in injustice toward the poor, it's to lie about them. It's to punish an innocent person. It's to not give them a proper trial. It's to not weigh the evidence fairly and impartially and to knowingly participate in that kind of a system would result in God's judgment against us. And this is exactly the scenario that we see play out in Israel's later history. In Psalm 82, God condemns the unjust judges of Israel with these words. In Psalm 82, it says, how long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? So this is a prayer from the perspective of somebody who feels like their voice isn't being heard fairly. It's to, and he, he calls upon God, come defend the weak and the fatherless, uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed, rescue the weak and the needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. So when we see the mention of upholding the cause of the poor in verse three, we have to pay attention to the context to figure out what this cause is that he is talking about. Well, if we look backward to verse two, we see it very clearly to defend the unjust and to show partiality to the wicked. Well, where have we seen these exact same themes before? Back in the law. (laughs) This is exactly what we saw in Exodus 23. And this is why I'm trying to teach you not to read the prophets or the poetry books without first understanding how these terms are defined in the law. Our tendency is to just read the prophets or the poetry books, see the word justice, and then immediately tie this to our immediate cultural moment and what our culture is telling us justice is. But we have to back up a step. We have to go back to places like Exodus 23 to see, okay, how does God define justice? It is when they don't have their fair day in court, when they get run over, when their case isn't properly adjudicated. Now, this leads us to a very important question. What is it about the poor that makes them so vulnerable to being exploited? I think there's a wonderful insight about this in Proverbs chapter 31. I love the sayings in Proverbs 31. It's really a description of how a king's mother taught him God's law as a child. It's a wonderful example for Christian parents to emulate. So let's look at these couple of verses in in Proverbs 31. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. This mother is teaching her son what it means to be a righteous person. Speak up for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Once again, we see the courtroom in view, the rights Judging fairly, this is the cause of the poor. It is primarily making sure that they have a proper voice, that they don't just get run over, that their cases are properly adjudicated and people deal with them fairly. And when they don't, that there's people that speak up and they say, hey, now, wait a minute, you know, this isn't right. God wants parents of his people to teach their children to speak up on behalf of the poor because they often cannot speak up for their own rights for themselves. Maybe they can't afford good attorneys. Maybe they don't have political connections to highlight corruption that's happening in the handling of their case. To live a righteous and just life is to speak up for those who don't have 
power and to make sure that the world doesn't just run them over. The poor have rights that shouldn't be disregarded. Why? Because a just society is one that treats the rich and the poor equally under the law. This is what it means to take up the cause of the poor. Now we're going to ask the question, how does all of this begin to work out in our everyday life? Uh, What does it mean to advocate for the cause of the poor? And I'm just going to offer a few examples to try to get you thinking. Uh, This isn't going to be an exhaustively complete list, but my hope is to stimulate your thought. And as you're studying scripture, you will start to start thinking of uh, some of your own examples as well. So if God's people are going to take up the cause of the poor, then they would want to advocate for verdicts that reflect the evidence. For example, let's say I have jury duty and I'm a Christ follower. I have a responsibility to dispassionately weigh the evidence as much as possible. I have a responsibility as a Christ follower to seek the truth and render a verdict that reflects that, that reflects the evidence. Even if it goes against the majority of people that are in the jury box with me, or even if it goes against the mob and the cultural sensibilities of my day. If I am a Christian and I work as an attorney, either as a prosecutor or as a defense attorney, I should never try to persuade a witness to shade the truth in the direction that will benefit my case. I would want to encourage my witnesses to be honest and truthful. And again, drawing these principles right out of Exodus chapter 23. Another uh, thing for Christians to consider who work in the law field, if I have skills as an attorney, how can I put those skills to use for people who can't afford my standard fees? What role could I play to make sure that the poor have as good of representation as the rich so that they aren't just getting run over by the system? If I'm a Christian working in the realm of criminal defense, how could I work to um, make sure that convictions are valid to work if, if someone has been wrongfully Convicted, how could I work to get them released? Are there things I could do to get evidence in their case reevaluated in light of new technology? God's justice standard says that the truth of a matter must be established by using two or three witnesses. So if there's instances where new technology can come forward as a witness for the truth, such as DNA evidence or video footage or credible new witnesses, and that evidence wasn't available at the, at the trial as a Christian working in the legal field, I would want to consider how can I make sure that this new evidence coming forward is considered. Even if the defendant can't afford my normal fees, these are practical examples of what it means to take up the cause of the poor. If I'm a Christian who is also a judge. How do I work to make sure that the poor coming through my courtroom have a fair trial? How do I ensure that the attorneys involved are acting ethically and putting forward valid evidence and not inappropriately coaxing witnesses to shade the truth? So even if the overall justice system is flawed, which it will be because it involves sinful humans, God's people who are working on the inside of the system have an obligation to be salt and light. What does that mean? It means that as a result of their identity as Christ followers, we would want to make sure that the poor are given a proper defense and treated with dignity, fairness, and equality, that the evidence is heard and that people aren't just railroaded into a conviction without giving, been giving proper representation. When we don't treat the poor, the widow, 
the orphan, the foreigner, with equality under the law. That is when we exploit them. When we don't allow the poor to have their fair day in court, when we don't allow the evidence in their case to get fairly considered, that is when we oppress the poor. And that is what brought God's judgment in the prophets. Now, another very common trend that I see in Christian conversations about justice is to engage in this sort of um, Robin Hood theology is what I call it, of villainizing the rich, that somehow being rich itself is a sin and that God is, is more for the poor than he is for the rich. Uh, for example, I just heard a chapel speaker last week at Biola University mention that the Beatitudes are not for the blessed, but for the oppressed. The entire message was basically a recasting of Jesus's ministry and message through the lens of liberation theology, which is the formal name, the academic name given to this Robin Hood theology is what I call it, of villainizing the rich. So let's talk a bit more about this. Does God favor the poor over the rich? Is there unequal treatment of rich versus poor? Well, let me begin by saying very clearly, there is nothing inherently sinful about being rich. Riches are sometimes even described in scripture as being the result of God's blessing and providence when his people obey his laws. For example, at the very end of the law in the book of Deuteronomy, the part where God is telling his people the blessings that will come to them for their faithful and humble obedience to his law. He says this in Deuteronomy 28, the Lord will grant you abundant prosperity in the fruit of your womb, the the young of your livestock and the crops of your ground in the land he swore to your ancestors to give you. The Lord will open the heavens, the storehouse of his bounty to send rain on your land in season and to bless all the works of your hands. You will lend to many nations, but will borrow from none. King Hezekiah, who was one of Judah's righteous kings, he is described as receiving a reward for his righteousness. It says in 2 Chronicles chapter 32, Hezekiah had very great wealth and honor, and he made treasuries for his silver and gold and his precious stones, spices, shields, and all kinds of valuables. He also made buildings to store the harvest grain, new wine and olive oil. He made stalls of various kinds for cattle, pens for flocks. He built villages and acquired great numbers of flocks and herds for God had given him very great riches. God's vision for his people, if they obeyed his commands, was to pour out his blessings on them, to take care of them, to make sure that they had enough to eat, that they had abundant crops and that they had money to lend to other nations and that they would not be in debt to other nations. Now I did an entire teaching about God's plan for prosperity a few months ago. And I laid out some of those principles from scripture for success and the growth of, of wealth. So I'm not going to rehash all that here. You may find that helpful But in getting back to our main question regarding taking up the cause of the poor and the oppressed, riches also bring certain advantages, such as being able to afford better lawyers. And sometimes the unrighteous rich engage in bribes to get themselves off. And to engage in bribery is to pervert God's standard of justice. We already read that in the very first verse that we read together in this teaching about how God doesn't show partiality and he doesn't take bribes. If we go back to Exodus 23 for a minute, we can pick up the discussion in verse eight. It says this, do not accept a bribe for a bribe blinds those who see and twists the words of the innocent. 
Do not oppress a foreigner. You yourselves know how it feels to be foreigners because you were foreigners in Egypt. So if we look at the context here of what oppression is in view, it's this idea of bribery. It's again, the law court is the context. And we see this very scenario play out with Eli's sons later in the book of Samuel. They were described as perverting justice because they accepted bribes. Eli's sons are a negative example of what not to do. They did not follow in Eli's righteous ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. God's expectations for the rich, however, is that they would live righteously, that they would be like Hezekiah, that they would be just. Wealth can lead to being overly self-reliant. <laughs> it can lead to temptations to engage in perverting justice. We think we can just sort of buy our way out of trouble and that we don't need God. The law doesn't apply to us because we can afford the best attorneys. This is how the unrighteous rich sometimes think. But from a biblical perspective, both wealth and poverty have their sin traps. I have found this description in Proverbs to be very helpful, a good summary of the competing vulnerabilities of wealth and poverty when it comes to righteous living. It says this in Proverbs uh, chapter 30, two things I ask of you, Lord, do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Notice what it says. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Give me only my daily bread. Otherwise I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? In other words, the rich don't need the Lord sometimes because they just feel like they can get out of trouble with their money. Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. Wealth can lead to being overly self-reliant. We think we can buy our way out of trouble. We don't need God. But poverty also has its vulnerabilities to sin. It can lead to the sins such as stealing or coveting. And it can even lead to a resentment of God himself. So we ought to pray each day for the needs of that day, that it will be enough. And that is where we find our contentment. In fact, this principle is echoed in the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 4. He says, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord, that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. But I have learned the secret of being content in every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. This is God's vision, rich and poor. The same standards apply. Both have sinful vulnerabilities. God doesn't favor one over the other. Rather, he wants equality under the law for all. All the laws apply equally. Evidence is weighed equally uh, that things are, are done dispassionately in his law courts. Now let's go to the third movement of this teaching. And I want us to consider um, what does the scripture mean then if, if God wants to treat the rich and the poor with the same standards, what does it mean when it says that God is the defender of the poor and the oppressed. Does that mean that he favors them? Let's look at Psalm chapter 12. Because the poor are plundered and the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will protect them from those who malign them. So this is a good passage that describes how God wants to protect the poor and the needy. Psalm 103 echoes this theme as well. It says in verse six, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. Now, social justice advocates will often use these kinds of statements to assert that God actually favors the poor. Like they have some 
special status in God's eyes. But is that what these verses actually mean? Um, Let's go to Proverbs 22, because I think that provides a very important insight into what these statements mean. It says this, do not exploit the poor because they are poor. Do not crush the needy in court. Notice again, we're back in the law court scene again. For the Lord will take up their case and will exact life for life. So when God comes to defend the needs of the, of the poor, he's specifically talking about making sure that their case is heard, that they are treated fairly. Because when God's people don't act righteously, when we don't give the poor equal treatment in court or in life, when we take advantage of them because they can't afford proper representation, when we unrighteous people accept bribes, when we allow false testimony, then God wants the powerless to know they are not overlooked by him. He sees them and God's just judgment will come. If not in this life, in the next. Now it's certainly true that God does go out of his way to make it clear that the invitation of the gospel includes the poor. In Luke chapter four, he applies the prophecy of Isaiah 61 to himself saying that he has come to bring good news to the poor. Yes, the gospel invitation goes out to the poor. But if we look, we see that the real message is this. When we look at the details, the gospel is for everyone poor and rich, the rich and the powerful and the blind beggars are all invited to come be full participants in the kingdom of God. The invitation is wide open. Why is this? Because sin is the one universal problem for all humanity. And Jesus's death, burial and resurrection is the one cure for the problem of sin. And it is the cure that everyone needs. Remember, the poor have vulnerabilities to sins and the rich have vulnerabilities to sins. Maybe they have vulnerabilities to different sins. But sin is the universal problem of the human condition. And the only cure for sin is the gospel. It's the good news that the, the creator of the universe has come in human flesh and intervened and has risen from the dead and in our place. And he has conquered sin and death for us. But the reality is not everyone will come. Not everyone will respond to that gospel call. We see in the ministry of Jesus, there are righteous rich who come to him like Nicodemus and Zacchaeus. And there are unrighteous rich who don't accept Jesus's invitation to life, such as the rich young ruler. We also see that there are righteous poor who come to Jesus, such as the blind beggar who met Jesus on the road into Jericho or Onesimus, the slave mentioned in the book of Philemon, who according to tradition became a bishop. He ascended to leadership in the church, but being poor doesn't mean that you're automatically righteous. Jesus tells two parables, for example, where a poor man is not the hero. The poor man with the fewest talents got taken off to judgment. And the poor man who was forgiven of a large debt was also sent to judgment when he didn't forgive his neighbor of a small debt. God doesn't show favoritism in salvation to anyone, rich or poor. He doesn't accept bribes from the rich. You can't buy your way into heaven. And he doesn't favor the poor because the poor also have sin. Everyone must come to salvation the same way through the cross. The ground is level at the cross. And that is because we all have the same problem and we are all in need of the same cure. Understanding these core principles will help us not fall into the ditch of Robin Hood theology, liberation theology that teaches God favors the poor. He doesn't favor the poor and neither does he favor the rich. When God instructs his people 
to treat others with equality, rich and poor. That is an extension of his own moral character. He wouldn't tell his people to not show partiality and then turn right around and show partiality himself. That would violate his character. So when we're taking up the cause of the poor today, as we see in these case laws, these examples in the Mosaic law, I've already outlined several very practical ideas. And I want to close out this teaching with just giving three more practical suggestions that I think have a direct tie-in to a biblical vision for justice when it comes to taking up the cause of the poor. First, I think it's worth asking some questions about what Christians can do to make sure that people on death row have had fair trials with verdicts based on solid evidence. If there are new witnesses that need to be heard, they should be heard. And because Christians value truth, we should advocate for that. A great um, practical example of somebody who's doing that is in the movie Just Mercy. You can see an attorney, Brian Stevenson, in his effort to, to embody that principle. Another way that Christians can take up the cause of the poor today that I think is directly tied into scripture is if a Christian has direct knowledge of corruption. For example, maybe they're a a police officer and they know there's corruption in their precinct or in their district attorney's office. And they have direct knowledge of this, especially if it involves exploiting the poor and the poor not receiving equal treatment. Then the local church needs to get behind that person, that Christian in terms of finances. If he or she needs to blow the whistle and they might lose their job. God's standard of justice demands that we not go along with the crowd in doing wrong. Rather, we speak out where we see that unequal standards are being applied, especially in law situations. Number three, I think much more conversation needs to be done in the Christian community about what we can do to advocate for equality in such areas as prison sentencing. There does seem to be credible statistical data that black people get longer sentences for the same crimes than white people. The issue of using equal weights and measures is an important biblical principle of justice. Biblical justice is founded on the idea that we judge people according to the same standards, not unequal standards. So this issue of unequal prison sentencing, I think, needs to be discussed and explored more deeply and more transparently. God's plan in the Old Testament was that while the people of God, Israel, were surrounded by ungodly nations, God's ideal was that Israel would be known for being a humble and loving people, that they would be a light on a hill shining and proclaiming the righteous standards of how to be humble and loving toward your neighbor and to treat everyone with dignity and fairness under the law. This is the beautiful example of Boaz in the book of Ruth. Boaz is a man who was shaped by the law. He was trying to live as a humble, righteous, obedient follower of God. And he did that for the nations. And in this case, for the Moabite, Ruth. He is what Israel should have been. (laughs) It's just a microcosm of it. Now, under the new covenant, God's plan is to create one new people. We call us the church. And he is, he is calling out men and women from among the nations. As the gospel goes out and people respond, now the church is made up of people from all over the world. And he is creating through them an invisible nation so that they will be a light to others of how to humbly love their neighbor, and how to obey God's law. So what will we, as God's people, be like? Well, if we follow God's justice standards, we will become the reality of what Israel never became. We will be a humble people 
who take up the cause of the poor and the oppressed, the widow, the orphan, the foreigner, by treating them with fairness and making sure they get their day in court, making sure that their cases are fairly heard, that sentences are equitable, and that we don't engage in perverting justice through bribery and false testimony and suppressing evidence. We will look in God's law and discover his vision for what love actually looks like because it is a reflection of his love and his standards of justice. Okay, I hope you found this helpful and we will continue to have these conversations about loving our neighbor and justice because that is what our culture wants us to talk about right now. And I'm seeing so many people drift into nothingness, Bill, um, because we don't have clarity about what God's word says. So we will continue this discussion. Monique has been encouraging me to do kind of an, another part to this teaching of talking about how do we help the poor without harming them? So I might develop that. I'm definitely going to do something on the Ten Commandments as a way of uh, loving our neighbor. So those are some things that you can look forward to in the coming months. So I hope you enjoyed this teaching. Please share it with others and give me your feedback on what you found helpful. And I want to thank you for watching. Good night. Be sure to follow Theology Mom on Facebook and like, comment, and subscribe on YouTube. Don't forget to catch Krista next week for more theology fun on Theology Mom and all the things. Thanks for listening. Thank you.